I mean, here in LA, just two blocks down, you have the Broad Museum that people are lining up outside every single day to get in there. And I can guarantee you that every artwork hanging on the wall or crumpled on the floor next to the wall mm -hmm. or whatever it is, isn't a thousand percent clear to every right. viewer. Right. And what the, the artist or the curator or the museum direction wants you to think about it isn't going to be coming across. Genius, it takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get onto my show. Howdy folks, welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host, Omar Crook. We just opened Nabucco last night with Placido Domingo. Amazing show, incredible. Directed by the same man who did uh, Idue Foscari, which I did a few years ago. Had a nice little solo, my solo debut at LA Opera. So this director is a little uh, special to me in particular, but he's also a real genius. I love his productions, and he's here with me today. Thaddeus Strasberger is on the show. We talk um, a lot about the intersection of art and commerce, politics and uh, uh, public opinion and the way that uh, artists can use their voices for to further their causes, usually causes that I agree with. I'm a dyed-in-the-wool uh, liberal and I believe in liberalism and I think art has by and large been uh, a voice of uh, my people and we talk about that and I don't get to do that very often. I'm very grateful that uh, Thaddeus directs uh, that way and that I uh, it resonates with me and I get to talk with it. It's a trifecta. It's amazing. Um, almost got killed backstage this week. Final dress of Nabucco. A rod slipped out of a curtain about 50, 60 feet above my head and came down like a javelin impaling itself in the deck with a mighty crash about four feet in front of me, right where I was standing about five seconds before. Got up on deck to make my entrance and saw that I, I was in sight lines and stepped back and about five seconds later this mighty thunderbolt struck. So I'm, I'm okay, everybody's all right. Uh, we'll see what happens. It's very, uh, you know, it's a big safety concern. It's the first time that's ever happened since I've been there in 13 seasons. Anyway, everything's fine, you know. Opera is not for the faint of heart, people. It's dangerous business. Speaking of dangerous business, I've been seeing on Facebook, on my feed, uh, Me Too, which refers to women who have been uh, harassed, assaulted, uh, sexually harassed and assaulted, primarily by men. And you know what? I think uh, we need to re-examine things like this and that uh, why is it up to the women to come forward? Why... Why, is, why do we teach women how not to be raped? Why do we teach women how to defend themselves? We need to start teaching our sons to stop being assholes. Let's start there. Let's do that. You know, I grew up in a family where that was very important. Uh, I don't think I've ever... Uh, I know I've never sexually assaulted somebody. And, uh, you know, I do joke around, but gosh, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's not great. So you ladies out there who are listening, let me know. Is that, is that, uh, have I ever behaved that way? I sure hope not. I wasn't raised to be that way. I've never thought of myself that way. So I need to do some thinking. We all need, we all need to do some thinking, especially you guys out there. So take a, take a second today on this lovely, beautiful, clear Monday afternoon and say to yourself, wow, you know, am I this way? First of all, 
And do I want to be this way? Have I behaved in a way that's inappropriate, that wasn't taken lightly, that maybe uh, somebody disguised their true feelings through a little chuckle? I don't know. It sucks. Yeah, you know, think about it. Anyway, that's all I've got. That's my soapbox. Oh, and Trump is terrible. He's still president. So call call somebody. There are 100,832 complaints you probably have about what he's doing. So call your congressman, call your representative, let him know. Hope you have a great rest of the week. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Here is Thaddeus. It's like the Wild West here. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, just cozy on up to that mic here. Yeah. And you can adjust it, whatever you like, whatever you're comfortable with. Thaddeus, so glad to see you. Nice to be here. You know, um, I'm going to start with a little flattery, first of all, if you don't mind. I like to grease the wheels right sure. off the bat. Um, there, uh, there are a lot of directors that I like to work with here. I've been here for, this is my 13th season. Um, uh, Barry Kosky is one of them. He's great. I, I like the innovation that he employs. I like uh, the conceptual nature of his productions and your productions. Now, I've only been in two now. We started with Foscari in which I sang the Fante. I loved working with you then. Um, and I love Nabucco. And I love your process. I love, I, well, let's talk about, let's talk about what you do, first of all. Uh, Nabucco is an obviously political story and has political references. It's definitely part of the zeitgeist now. Is that something that you try and employ with all of your directing, some of your directing? You're obviously comfortable uh, making a statement that that is topical. Well, I think there has to be a reason to do everything that we put on stage. There's so many resources. It takes so much effort to get it there that if it's only entertainment, then I just think we're missing out on a opportunity. Sure. To discuss these things. Is that in spite of uh, what the composer had in mind? Do you take liberties that way? Do you think that that uh, our art form is conducive to that type of message? I think it's very conducive to the message because I've never worked on a contemporary piece where I don't feel like the composer has um, a culturally relevant and politically charged motivation for doing what they're doing now. So I don't see how that would have magically been different in another time. And with somebody like Verdi, we have so many letters that he was writing at the time it's so well archived and the older he got and the more famous he got we have even more information and there's absolutely no question about his political stance as a private person and then as a public figure and how he was able to channel his ideas into the operas and even if his political climate uh, isn't exactly what's happening today in the world the themes of those things are certainly current events mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i um I have this discussion a lot with my colleagues. Um, one of my best friends is a very well-known composer, and we talk about he's got a he's got a platform. You know, he has millions of uh, Facebook friends and Twitter. You know, I mean, he's uh, very popular. And I sometimes ask him. I say, you know, what prevents you from using your platform to further your political beliefs or your own causes? And he's he's very uncomfortable. In doing that, and I talked to Christopher Kelsch here, and I understand he's in charge of raising money for the company, and he's got to make friends. And <clears throat> but is that it? Is that is it? Is it money? Is that the problem that prevents people from exercising their um, 
uh, politics in the arts. But I don't think money and politics are not related. I mean, we have these Supreme Court decisions about super PACs and how we can fund um, promoting certain political ideas, maybe through a more obvious political structure. But just because I think sometimes you think about the sponsors or the funding model as being something that is, oh, we could offend or we have to push away. And so we have to be more careful on the edges. But you could actually go the other way around. There's a lot of people that do have a lot of money and support and interest in what the arts can do that um, maybe are not opposed to the kinds of ideas that are being uh, put on the on the opera stage, mm-hmm. so it can't be only something about what we're um, conservative and, and 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 fearful of, but it could be something that could be embraced. And a lot of that has to do with um, engagement and explaining to people uh, what actually the power of opera and the theater and that platform can be, and then how it can be mm-hmm. channeled for the greater good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about how you got to become one of my favorite directors. You were born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yes. Went, went through high school there, ended up going to college in New York. Is that? I went to the Cooper Union in New York City. Yes. yes. And uh, ended up, uh, you were granted a Fulbright to go to Italy to study at La Scala as a scenic designer. Yes. Uh, was that your primary interest in school? Was it design? What were you studying? Uh, well, first of all, let me start earlier than that. Were your parents musicians? My parents were not musicians. I went to the Opera House for the very first time in my hometown when we were hosting a Japanese exchange student. And as part of the the program, we got invited to a, a final dress rehearsal of a production of Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. So actually, in, in a program that was designed to introduce Japanese high school students to <laughs> uh, American or Western culture, in a sense, um, I myself got introduced to it. And I loved it from the sure. very first time I went. Well, I'm glad it wasn't Madame Butterfly. Um, so that experience, was it that really that experience that transformed you in high school? Is that when it happened? That was even earlier than high it school, was. actually. She was older than I was. It was She was my sister's age. So... Mm-hmm. Um, No, I think I went to the theater a lot as a child, and I remember being fascinated by the whole event. And I never once wanted to be on stage. I I went to a production of Peter Pan when I was five years old, I remember my mother tells me. And I remember seeing up in the catwalks above the the theater, you could see uh, the follow spot operators. And I was like, I want to do that. Really? And I didn't know what a follow spot operator did. Now I know a lot more. (laughs) But I think that instinct was just that I wanted to somehow be... um, creating this whole event and so you ask if I was a designer or a director I mean as a as a kid you don't really know what a director does uh, right and I right. think it's much easier in a way to grasp what a designer does because there's actual things that are you can created you can see it, can see sure, it. directing is this whole process that you have to be there for weeks to understand mm-hmm. w- you know what a director does so I as I went through I just wanted to make the the happening happen and the the more experience I got and the more I understood um, the mechanics of it all, then that morphed into directing, but it's still, I have a strong design component sure. to what I do. Was directing manifested in some crazy way as a kid? Like, did you put on shows in the backyard or did you, how, how did you, oh, I did how all did you of, start? I did yeah. all of that. You did? Yeah, yeah. Puppet shows, you know, audience, you know, I did, I never really cared about the audience the opening night. I was much more interested in um, the whole process, even like, you know, printing up little tickets and things. And I, I didn't really care who came. <laughs> I probably did lots of shows in my mind that nobody even knows happened because I didn't have a very good PR department at that point. Uh, sure, sure. And now I'm a, I'm a bit better at working with um, 
media relations. Sure. So uh, when you went to Cooper Union, were mm -hmm. you studying uh, theater? Were you studying design? What did you decide on by the time you got to college? No, actually, the whole university thing, people ask me a lot because they kind of think, how did I go from studying engineering, which is what my degree is in, into opera? Because the, the faculties that the, it's called the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art, and it's a kind of specialized institution that has... Um, a faculty of engineering, a faculty of fine arts, and a faculty of architecture. And um, I actually did a program within that that only a few people do each year. Um, three or four students opt to do this, where you do a um, a program, a course of study, where you work through all three departments with the architecture, fine arts, and, and engineering. So even though my degree was actually granted by the School of Engineering, I was there already in this kind of... Um, say, technology and problem-solving side of things together mm -hmm. with uh, the creative side of things. But the interesting thing, too, the Peter Cooper, who actually founded the university in the 1850s, uh, he's a contemporary of Verdi's, um, which is quite interesting. He was a self-taught um, man. There was no engineering school sure. at that point. But he ended up inventing uh, a lot of things that paved the way for really m the way the modern world works. And he became very successful through some of his engineering works, one of which was he um, he started out by buying property in Pennsylvania that was really inaccessible from New York. And then he invented the a machine to extrude uh, railway rails and was able to build a private railway to get people from Manhattan to this land, which then he was able to sell at a much higher premium because he could get people there. Sure. And then he figured out it was like an I-beam kind of structure the way the um, the the railing was. You mean the, it would come out molten, just lay it down onto the ground and it would set there? How, no, how, I'm not exactly I mean, how it was. It was extruded yeah. and, you know, tempered and everything. Wow. But he had this extruder machine yeah. that was able to fast manufacture long tracks, bits huh? of tracks. Mm -hmm. But the shape of the track was basically like an I-beam. Mm -hmm. And then he used that at the Astor Library, which is now the public theater in New York City, um, to build the tallest building at the time, eight stories tall, with these railroad tracks that were turned vertically to become I-beams before anybody had figured out how modern steel I-beams work. And so he became a multimillionaire in the 1850s sure. and um, then founded an institution that was meant to be forever as free as the air and water, he said, um, that was the first institu institution that taught these practices to both men and women and to people of all races and creeds because at the time you had the Columbia that was you know religiously affiliated and everything sort of had a religious affiliation to it and he mm -hmm. was Jewish mm -hmm. and wasn't even allowed to go to those places even if he'd had money so he built this sort of very forward free thinking place and I really wanted to sort of follow in the footsteps of what he was doing of you take all of these elements and what he was creating he actually made he invented the first building the the, the main building cooper union which still stands today uh had an elevator shaft in it but and there had never been an elevator but he designed a building built it with these i-beams with a circular cylindrical elevator shaft and then he had a public competition for designing a passenger elevator which nobody had ever seen in their life and it was the person that won it was a mr otis of course so it's you know the, all these stories go together and um I think that it it fits in with my sort of philosophy about how operas work. It's there's a real kind of rigorous problem solving um, methodology to what's going on in mm -hmm. the pieces, but then there's also a uh, a creative component that sort of has to come out of the you know from the muses out of the out of the ether. You know, so it's it's both this really sort of ungraspable sort of nebulous thing as well as you know we have spreadsheets and, right. and everything to sort of conquer these big casts and right. multiple scenes and everything right well it seems like you have a love affair with the past in the way that you 
describe the the piece that we're working on and the drama and uh, and obviously the the production design and the way that the stage is set up and the drops the way that they're made it's all very much like it would have been back in the day but you also have uh, uh, an, your other foot firmly planted in the future and ha do you ever do you ever come up with uh, do you ever how do you solve problems when you're thinking about the conceptual nature of your uh, direction do you do you do you ever worry that you're going to go too far forward or too far back? How do you marry those two ideas when you're thinking about a new production? Well, it takes um, a whole team of collaborators to do it. I oftentimes design the, the scenery and the direction, but I work closely with a costume designer. And a costume designer isn't just making clothes or costumes that people wear, but he or she is inventing characters with you, which is part of the directing process as well. Um, you're really inventing who the people are, and then you figure out how you, you manifest them on the outside. And even the same with a lighting designer is, is there to talk about the whole process and how we sort of... Um, the, the flow of information and images that, that come out is something that you have other people that you talk to. You also have the music director and the conductor that you can talk to about sort of larger structural mm -hmm. issues with the piece. Mm -hmm. But I think ultimately, I mean, it is kind of a lonely art form. So even though it th takes thousands of people to put an opera on, in the end, you still have to sort of in your core figure out what you think is right. And luckily with these big co-productions that oftentimes go from city to city and have a life that can span several years, you get a chance to revisit it. Um, and tweak it. Mm -hmm. You know, because the first time you're doing it, you've never seen it with the orchestra. You've never seen how it really works. And, um, you know, oftentimes you're surprised that like, wow, like we really nailed that. And, you know, it, it came together and like, thank goodness for like art and craft combining. Right. And then other times you think, you know what, there's an opportunity for improving something. If you're doing a, uh, a musical, you might have you know a month or six weeks of previews where you, you get to tweak it and change it and have rehearsals. But the opera process um, doesn't really allow for that for the, the, the sheer size of the, the chorus and the orchestra and everything. It's just a reduced time. So every time we bring it back, we have a we always have a list of things that we would like to try. Or even, it's not even that that didn't work or this worked, but uh, we were sort of looking at two different options and we could really sort of see the merits to, to them both. And sometimes you say, well, let's try it this way here and then as long as you keep your own critical eye on what it is, it becomes a kind of learning feedback right. process. This is a question that I ask composers quite often. Uh, you know, is it hard to watch your baby leave the nest? Um, and I guess from an outsider's perspective, it always seems like you do something, you release it, and it's done. But like composition, at least the way some composers see their work, I see that you see it as a living, breathing thing, and you don't have... Um, uh, well, I, here's the other question: Do you do you ever butt up against people that want you to change things, and you just have to put your foot down? How do you pick those battles, and and do you win? Do you lose? What do you do? Well, oftentimes I think people. Uh, I mean, in opera, you're sort of bringing a lot of preconceived notions to each piece because you have a different history with it if you've seen it performed elsewhere seen it performed by different people and so it takes a while to get everybody onto the same page sometimes exactly what you're doing here mm -hmm. whether it's the the famous singers that have done the role many times in different places or conductors or um, oftentimes with a chorus that sung you know the, the operas many many times and there could be sure. people in the chorus that have been there for 30 years or in the orchestra they've always done bowings a certain way or we've always sung this section piano and if you want to sort of change it around, it's it's not about convincing people about individual moments, mm -hmm. um, because that's just sort of a binary decision, this way or that way. But what you need
need to do for me is to get people involved into the whole atmosphere and to sort of live in this three-dimensional world mm -hmm. in which case the each of the decisions they're not imposed from the outside but they start to feel somehow natural mm -hmm. i work a lot of times with singers um if i do a production in different cities and um sometimes they'll go after they've, we've opened the show or something they'll catch a clip on youtube or see a dvd that's been previously made of the production that they hadn't looked at because a lot of singers don't want to see what was done before mm -hmm. and then they go how is that possible that we're doing exactly the same staging that you did three years ago at the kennedy center when we made it all new here and I'm saying, well, actually, we didn't. They, they said, you never told us what to do. Right. And, you know, I, I don't even say enter upstage left and then come here and sing and do this and think that. I just always sort of give the same kind of parameters. Yes. And then I ask the, the performers to, what would you do in this situation given these parameters? Mm -hmm. And then they make the decision that is spontaneously theirs mm -hmm. that happens to be the same spontaneous decision that three other singers made. Because it's human. It's a human decision. It's a human thing, but mm -hmm. based on the certain, you know, but if I, I if I structure the parameters in such a way, you get both things. You get a really solid, because I have very clear ideas about sort of the architecture of how people are moving and in the, the space traffic and, and the traffic mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the, the structure. But... You, I also want it to be spontaneous and authentic, charismatic yeah. and authentic. Right. And so that's something that it, that I work really hard on, not about technique, about how to get people to do exactly what I want, but how to get people to um, appear to be... Acting naturally, right? Exactly. I mean, that's one of the things that I love about working with you, and we have suffered the opposite, and quite often, actually, um, in that we're, we're oftentimes asked to do things, unless it's a... Robert Wilson production or something that's obviously contrived and very unnatural uh, and highly conceptual, but it reads in a different way, where we have these uh, naturalistic, realistic um, uh, directorial styles, but they ask us to behave in a way that no real person would ever behave. We just stand around and watch somebody die. or you, I mean, it's just sometimes it's really preposterous, and it, it's a little bit insulting, frankly, as an artist. And... Um, uh, I've, I've liked that in the two times that I've worked with you and that you empower the entire uh, cast, the chorus and the principals, to behave in a way that uh, tricks the audience into thinking they're watching something authentic, even within this highly contrived structure and, and the paradigms that you have to stick with. And, um, do you ever run into uh, a problem where you have to really dictate everything? Is that, is that, does that ruin it for you? I mean... Does it matter? Is it just a matter of solving problems for you? I mean, every opera and every composition has its sort of own sort of quirks to it. Mm. So often, yeah, there are things that I have to be more specific on. But for example, with this Nabucco, um, in the beginning, there's a big crowd scene where there's war waging outside and everybody's running around. And we do the first several rehearsals. I just want everybody to find their character and the, the feeling of the situation. And it would be really boring. And the first one to say, right, ladies, on this bar, I need you to all be together. Hopefully, Sopranos on this side mezzo's on this side because that's going to like really work um because then you do that you've you've taken out the spontaneity then the sopranos come in and they go okay i know i need to group here with my other colleagues and then there's no way to reverse engineer all that excitement so what you do is you just keep the excitement and you're running around and you're keeping everybody completely a thousand percent in the dramatic situation mm -hmm. and then once people sort of have that in your bones it's very easy at a next rehearsal to say hey at this moment could you pre-think about right. being closer together next to your colleagues and then in that moment it actually strengthens because what everybody's doing now they can they 
here and they have this sort of sonic reinforcement from what's happening around them and then they can be right. even stronger in what they're doing as opposed to the other way around where it might have been weaker of saying well we're all in a group so I can kind of back off because right. it already has an impact or right. something. Right, the subtext is I love what you're doing and do this as well. Right. Which is a little bit different psychologically as a performer. Yeah, so I mean I would say some, I mean, some pieces, it, I mean it completely depends on how you know regimented you want it to be but i think as long i think with a lot of the singers the feedback that i get because i'm always talking to the singers as well as Mm -hmm. as we go through i try not to disappear Mm -hmm. um and even if i can come back to a performance later down the line i'm I'm always happy to do that and sort of find out what they feel about the situation and what makes them feel comfortable and what i normally hear is that they feel that they have a lot of freedom to doing what they're doing and that freedom in a in a weird sort of way it's almost like the, they have a discipline of knowing exactly where the limits are like the aria needs to be in this six foot radius mm-hmm. otherwise the picture's not going to be right. right but if that's great so then they're not thinking oh do i stand here do i stand here to where, where do i go any opportunities but once they've got those sort of limitations then there's the the freedom that they find within that and in that freedom you start listening to your colleagues and you start behaving as an ensemble and you start behaving like real people again to, to me that, in. that's the key right is to behave like real people i talk to a lot of people about listening Mm-hmm. Um, on stage and even when I when I, every theater I'm in I always talk to the photographers that are coming to the final rehearsals and I say please don't take a picture of anybody who's singing but take a picture while they're listening because most people are listening more often than on stage even a big role like Nabucco he's probably singing for less than half an hour mm-hmm. all together mm-hmm. total in the, in a three hour evening but and when you're singing, there's a lot that you have to, to concentrate on what's happening vocally, technically, your text, your uh, who you're communicating with. You've got a conductor. You're trying to remember the staging. You're not you're trying not to trip because you know everybody's looking at you. Yep. Where's your beard? Where's your hair? All of these things. So there's a kind of um, artificiality to, to that situation. But I work with so many people that are amazing actors that when they're freed from that intense 12-step thing that they're doing simultaneously, then they're just really interesting characters physically. And if I devote as much time to how people listen in a scene as to how much they're communicating in a scene, Mm -hmm. then um, you get something that feels more authentic. And then people also feel as if um, there's a thousand percent involved all the time. Even when I was working with Placido in uh, Covent Garden on this Foscati, when we were making the DVD for mm-hmm. it, there was a couple moments we would always watch the DVD tests and, and look at them together. And he would say, "Ah, oh, when I'm listening here, uh, this is when I need to act more. This is when I need to be even more involved. Present, yeah. Present. Mm-hmm. And because he says you really see the artificiality if you're if you're there, but you're not keyed in. You're to thinking about the laundry, yeah. The emotion, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you have a favorite production that you've put on? Is there one where you think, oh, okay, that's that's Thaddeus right there. That's my signature. It's interesting. I think you find, I mean, I don't even know if it's like children. Do you have a favorite or sure, and do. do you sort of, <laughs> <laughs> how many kids do you have? Two. Oh, uh-oh. <laughs> so I'm not going to say which. It's 50-50. They'll figure it out. Um, and I think every single one of them has something that... I mean, even I would say some productions are sort of fetishistically things about them that yeah. really please me. Right. And every production, I will also think there's something that doesn't quite work. I mean, we're, we're the way we inherit these these operas from long time ago. Sometimes there's moments that I'm convinced that if the composer was in the room, they would say, "Oh, those twelve bars, we don't need them anymore," or "Oh, we could really expand that moment." 
Um, because when you read about Verdi or Mozart or Puccini, like how they were real theater people and really involved in what was happening with the drama mm -hmm. and pacing of everything, I don't think that they were writing scripture. Um, and it's it's not that, but but it's a fine line That's because a big one. then I mean, you know how do we take? I mean, but there's lots of things that we do. It's interesting, sort of where people. I mean, speaking of scripture, you know, let's follow this Bible verse and then we'll kind of ignore that Bible verse right, because right. Uh, the same thing is they're like, oh well, nobody sings two verses of that aria, or we never do the cabaletta, or blah blah blah. But then you say, well, let's cut these four lines of recit that are really silly, and then it's like, well, no, but that's really important, and so it's it's kind of like who's you know who's the, right. the supreme well, court? Well, like all the cadenzas and tenor repertoire, all because of Caruso, because he was the first to record them. He was the most famous singer in of that time so everybody thinks that the rigoletto ends this way and that you know all the arias end this way they they really he made up a lot of them right so he wasn't very precious with it either yeah and also verity there's i mean there's so much writing about what he thought about how things can be ornamented and where the space is and also you can't talk about any of these people as you know artists that existed uniquely in their own time you're talking to me i'm talking about productions over the course of five years maybe mm -hmm. eight, ten years i've been working but we're talking about verity who started at 25 and went till he was 91 so of course and, and the world completely changed i mean countries formed like sure everything changed and yeah so of course you we can't talk about Verdi and Otello and Aida in the same breath that we talk about say Traviata and Rigoletto or the early work like Foscari and Nabucco. Sure. I mean he's an evolving, highly intelligent, complex human being with a really complicated personal life. And sure. Is he your favorite? He's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he gets it. Yeah. Uh are there any shows that you haven't done that you're just chomping at the bit to get to? I'm dying to do a Macbeth. Ah. What would you do with that? I don't know because and, I mean the thing is you always think you're going to do one thing with it and then yeah. when you sit down in the studio to actually start making a model it often ends up being something completely different than what you thought because there's uh, what I think now today if somebody offered it to me it wouldn't happen already for two or three years at the at the shortest sure. and you know politics and your ideas and your own identity and what fascinates you um, changes you know you're always hearing new things seeing new things in, you know in museums and other theaters in the newspaper mm -hmm. on the street that so it doesn't intimidate you to start something and have it reveal itself as the process goes on no not at all i feel the same way as a writer uh before i got into music i was a writer and that was uh and and as a principal singer that was always my favorite moment that day that the character revealed itself to me and it's usually three or four weeks into the process once it's really on its feet and i'm and i'm uh relating to the other singers uh that's when it happens and I, I i don't know if everybody feels that way i'm very much like you though it's a thrilling moment when i get clarity because uh, you think you think uh about the what you think the character should be in the context of the story and throughout history and how people have played that character but it's always become something very personal and it's almost like magic when it happens is that something that you experience when you're putting a show together well, I mean, I'm very organized and I have a lot of images and I have uh, always a very clear plan of what I'm going to do. And yet somehow I'm the one when I'm presenting it all, what I know where the flexibility still remains and what is sort of dogmatically will make it to the end. Uh, about two years ago, I did a production of Satyagraha by Philip Glass mm -hmm. in Russia. It was the very first time that uh, Philip Glass had ever been performed on an opera stage in Russia and I think ever live any Philip Glass music I don't even think any of his symphonic work had been done and um, 
we put it on stage just months after the invasion of Crimea and Ukraine and putting an opera on stage uh, about passive resistance and how to confront um, neighboring warring nations Mm -hmm. felt really risky to me. And I was um, and also the as a director, obviously, Philip Glass is difficult because there's no text and you know it's in Sanskrit uh, and it's all super poetic and it's not meant to be narrative in any classical Western sense. Mm -hmm. And um, I got really scared right before we started it because I didn't have any of my usual toolkits really available to me about character and conflict. And then you start realizing, well, the opera is about nonviolence and about how to uh, resolve conflicts in a different way. And I'm thinking every time we do a Shakespeare or Verdi or Puccini, everything is about people arguing with each other and then either resolving it or killing each other or poison, you know, know, all of these horrible (laughs) things. And I thought I have to approach the Satyagraha in a in the same way that the lessons of Satyagraha are teaching us that I can't fight with it and I can't look for um, combat in it. And I can't create structures that I'm familiar with. Did you find comfort in that parameter? Um, I found that terrifying in the beginning because it was completely new. But actually, mm. I had a, a very long rehearsal period with very well-prepared singers and a very collaborative music director. And each day, it was like the very first time in my life that I didn't sort of constantly feel the clock ticking down mm. and that we had to do this, and we had to do this, and we had to do this. There was a real flexibility. All the workshops were in the opera house. So if I had a new idea, I could get something new made or a costume could really easily be changed mm-hmm. at the last minute without sort of undoing the battle plan. And I was extremely proud of the the result of that, that production uh, because it... It was like a new way of working and a new way of engaging with the public. And it's now played over 50 performances. It continues. It's in the repertoire. And it's won the Golden Mask Award at the uh, sort of like the Oscars in Russia, mm-hmm. um, and which continues people to, to be interested in it. But one thing that I really like about it is that the because it plays about once a month in the repertory system, people, they have like the highest repeat ticket sales of people coming back to see it over and over and over. And they, the way they've incorporated it into their sort of private life as a ritual that's all you know it has a sort of spiritual quality to mm-hmm. it you know once a month we're going to go hear this thing and listen to this message again and um for me that's really exciting because i think that if it took me you know grappling with this piece for two years to sort of come to terms with how to begin to understand what the possibilities of non-violence in reaction to a violent force against you um, I mean, that's real politics mm-hmm. at work. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about connecting yourself with a particular contemporary composer to produce pieces, uh, custom pieces that you'd want to impart to the population as far as message goes? I mean, you seem very, and I am too, I'm very passionate about what's happening in the world right now, how we can combat it. I'm terrified at the state of the arts in general in this country and how it's becoming privatized, which changes everything. Have you ever... You know, like some directors attach themselves to certain composers and vice versa. Is that something that you are open to or looking towards? Or, Well, as far as new work goes, I've directed and designed JFK by David T. Little and Royce Vavrek, who wrote The Dog Days, which I think was done in L.A. a season or two ago. And the JFK is obviously it's a political figure, um, but they were not interested at all in making a, a biography of him. They were really exploring sort of the the time and atmosphere that he was operating in. Mm-hmm. And they're very interested in how that relates to the time 
an atmosphere that we're operating in now. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's easier if you're too, I think with all work, even updating operas, which I do all the time and mm -hmm. I do historical things and updates. If you do it too close to contemporary things, there's too many things that actually don't work. Right. But if you, if you can sort of keep it uh, slightly separated or slightly disconnected in, in time and reality, mm -hmm. then there's a lot more places to fill in the connections mm -hmm. between them. And I think David has very uh, has, uh, political ideas that I'm interested in. They're not exactly aligned with my own mm -hmm. either. And I find that conversation with just a highly intelligent musician. Um, Refreshing, yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's so hard to come by these days. Just a decent conversation with somebody who you don't agree 100% with seems to be impossible, especially with Facebook and all this bullshit that's going on. Um, I also noticed that you don't put everything on the nose with our show in the last, uh, after the after the curtain and after the applause and after the bows we have a little surprise and you could have very easily made it even more obvious what you were trying to say my question is do you look at the audiences that are going to be seeing your shows and tailor the message accordingly uh depending you know americans need a blunt object sometimes in figuring out what what things are about is that a consideration for you yeah, I think it's not just Americans that need blunt objects. But I think one thing that's interesting is that in other art forms outside the opera house, there is a bigger expectation that people can take sort of various stimuli and extrapolate some sort Their of meaning, meaning from right. it. Mm -hmm. I mean, here in L.A., just two blocks down, you have the Broad Museum that people are lining up outside every single day to get in there. And I can guarantee you that every artwork hanging on the wall or crumpled on the floor next to the wall mm -hmm. or whatever it is isn't a thousand percent clear to every right. viewer right and what the the artist or the curator or the museum direction wants you to think about it isn't going to be coming across and we're sure. very comfortable with that and it, yes. it sparks a discussion and oftentimes in in opera houses uh the discussion goes something like this of oh you've got this really idea we find that really interesting we're just not sure that our public will a thousand percent understand that and then they might be uncomfortable with not understanding it and then they'll withdraw their support forever and ever i think that brings me back to the financial aspect a painting costs five hundred dollars to make two hundred dollars to make fifty dollars to make maybe that has something to do with it i mean the amount of money it takes to put a show up is extraordinary you know a million dollars sometimes um and that leads me to believe that we need to go back to state-sponsored art and strengthen the nea and how how is do you do any work towards that? Are you uh, active politically that way directly? I wish that I could be more actively politically. Sometimes in America, it feels like you're just it's the, like the Sisyphus, right? Sisyphus, the boulder is just pushing you down the mountain. And it's this very, I mean, I would say, if anything, I'm probably more vocally active about uh, single payer health care insurance sure. in the United States than I am about the arts, because I think that there's sort of a, a waterfall of importance there. And I think that healthcare right. is an absolute fundamental one. I've lived in London for a long time and the, the healthcare system there is completely different than sure. here. And it it's not just about, it's related to what happens in the arts in many, many ways, because it's not just about, you know, when I get sick or I'm in an accident that I get taken care of. It's about a fundamental uh, freedom in the way you can live your life. And I think one of the things that's super difficult in the arts in America is if it's um, 
sort of an unsteady gig kind of based economy that's mostly freelance. And your most healthcare plans in the United States are tied to full time employment. Yep. So already, even though I think those of us that work in the arts, it's I don't think it's an unstable lifestyle in mm -hmm. a way because I can't really be fired from my job. Mm -hmm. I can be not rehired in in a place. Sure, but. I know I have more stable income for the next three or four years just because I have all these projects that are going on. Right. And if you work for you know, a private company, you can be let go tomorrow. Right. And, you know, you've got a mortgage and a car payment and insurance and Cobra to pay and all these crazy mm -hmm. things. So if you're an artist that has really good ideas and you can really get out there and make it and you can make a living, you, you can make enough money to pay your rent and everything, but then you have a uh, healthcare issue and I'm not talking about cancer or a car accident there's right. millions of things sure. that you have to take care of sprained ankle all the time mm -hmm. um, yeah exactly you know? a, mi a million things yeah. uh, a, a bit of bronchitis that seems to be hanging around too long that needs to be taken care of and then you can't do your job and then if you can't go to work for three weeks then you don't get paid because you're on a gig economy and then you're not spending and then, money and you're you know blah 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 it goes in this whole big sure. circle and I think that ultimately the um the American sort of cultural landscape is poorer for it because there's lots of talented people that are not giving their all to the creative output sure. because there's lots of real-life human practical issues underneath it. Well, when you want to be a politician, you've got to get reelected, and it's really hard to get reelected when you're running on platforms that take generations to fix. Nobody wants to vote for that here. They, well, people want to. People want to. You know, if there's crime, we need to build more jails. That's because we can do that in a week. We can put up a jail in a week. To, to solve crime, really, you know, it takes 30 years of education and health care, birth control, and all sorts of things that nobody wants to run on because you'll never get reelected. But crime is also an industry. I mean, so that's the... What? The whole... You're crazy. Nobody wants to get rid of it because <laughs> it's, it's a great little moneymaker. Oh, I've never heard such a thing. No. What do you have coming up? What's next? Um, I've got some interesting projects coming up. The very next thing I do is the JFK is going to be seen in Montreal. It was a co-production from the beginning. Have you tweaked that at all since then? Um, yeah, there's yeah. A little things. I think we probably pushed it a bit further. I think mm -hmm. maybe the Montreal um, public is mm -hmm. uh, ready for a bit more than maybe they were in Texas, sure. where a lot of the people who were depicted in the opera were still alive and attending the, the opera. Wow, really? Politicians and their spouses. That's exciting. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, and I mean, it's it's a very sort of surrealistic, fantasy-prone piece. So I think there's uh, lots, of, lots of places we can sort of change things. I think the orchestra is saying almost exactly the same. It's very, very li little that we've changed. But visually, there's, a f there's often things. We, often we tried this way, but we have another idea we tried that way. Sure. Another piece I'm doing that I'm really excited about is also in Russia. It's uh, a piece by Martinu called The Greek Passion. Mm-hmm. Um, which isn't uh, done very often, but it's a really beautiful piece about, um, it's very timely around the world, about whether the um, sort of moral ideas that are advanced by organized religion are as moral as what humans could do on their own. Well, you've read this recent article, right, about... Uh, in, about uh, um Oh, what's the word? Not genetic, but uh, inherent morality that we're all born with. Right. That uh, it was just an article I read maybe a month ago uh, where they did brain scans and presented problems. There's the famous uh, uh, train track problem where you have five people on the track and you've got one person next to you. You can save the five by pushing the one down on the track. Do you do it? 
you know, and then there's the lever that you can pull and 90% say they'll pull the lever and 2% say they'll push the guy, even though the same outcome happens. And there's this whole thing about uh, the fact that it's good for our survival as individuals and th therefore as a species to be moralistic and to make uh, choices that don't directly harm people next to us, which I thought was very interesting. Are you a religious person at all? No. I'm not either. Totally atheist. I, I Some of my best friends are highly religious. I've picked the ones that exercise their religion in the best way, the way that I think it was intended. But I find what you just said very fascinating. And what is the, are you presenting an outcome in that direction or are you leaving it ambiguous? How does it go? Well, the, the opera itself is quite clear. It is. Yeah. In that uh, organized religion often falls short of the mark of its stated goals. Mm -hmm. Was he an, uh, an enlightenment? Uh, Martin New, where, where, where was? Where? No, he was writing in the 1940s and 50s, oh. 20s, 30s, 40s, so 50s. Post Enlightenment. Yes, he probably liked Voltaire, though. I bet. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and the the next thing I'm doing is also sort of on these big religious themes of the it's the Demon by Rubinstein, who was uh, sort of predates Tchaikovsky huh. in the big Russian school, and it's um, about a young woman whose soul is being fought over by an angel and a demon. And how is she going to end up uh, living her life? And she's questioning whether it, it's not so clear whether she thinks the angel or the demon is the the better option. And then at the end, I'm not sure whether the angel and demon actually exist, but she's sort of grappling with her own sense of sexuality and morality. Do you find comfort in, in directing uh, pieces that aren't as well known or does it matter to you? I like them both, actually. It just so happens I think a lot of people ask me to do these kinds of pieces because um, I think they know they're going to get sort of a rigorous approach to mining the material mm -hmm. that's there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I've equally enjoyed doing Don Giovanni or Figaro or Fariata, sure. those sort of things. Yeah, great. Well, I know time is fleet. We've got to get on stage. Thanks for being on the show, Thaddeus. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it, folks. The genius, Thaddeus Strasberger. Thank you, Thaddeus, for being on my show. I know that your schedule is busy. We've all been very busy at the opera lately, too. And I was just glad we could put a little time together. Uh, what else? Thank you for listening. Oh, I forgot to say at the top of the show, if you enjoy my podcast, please go to iTunes. Rate, review, and subscribe to my podcast. It takes a couple seconds. doesn't cost you a, a dime. It would sure help me out. That's all I ask. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Have a great rest of your week. Remember to always try and be kind to each other. And until next time. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius. Get onto my show.